Today on Ag News Daily. One that we're really concerned with is obviously Initiative 16 over in Colorado, or the PAUSE Act is what they were calling it. And that's regarding pretty much any animal agriculture, making it practically illegal to do any sort of AI. Good afternoon and happy Wednesday from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr, and this time I'm not joined by Delaney Howell. I am joined by Dawson Schmidt. Hello. (laughs) How's it going today, Dawson? Uh, It's going pretty good. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to try this out that Delaney trusts me to be on the podcast today instead of her. So I'm willing to give her a go. I know. She just threw you in here. No training wheels or anything. Oh, yeah. I guess I'm going to get the full effect today. She told me earlier that she would listen later on. And I told her, I was like, please don't, because I'm reading off the markets for the first time. Kind of no training wheels here. I say no training wheels. I've been on the podcast long enough. I probably should be able to read the markets by now, but it's probably going to be a little bit of a bumpy road, folks. So just buckle up and hang tight with us. Well, Dawson, um, giving off some news here, I have a follow-up of a of the Venezuelan story that I shared, I believe it was last week, talking about their diesel shortages. Venezuelan farmers, manufacturers, and retailers on Wednesday earlier today pressed President Nicolas Maduro to speed up a plan to resolve the shortages of diesel, warning that this lack of fuel was threatening harvest and food transportation in their crisis-stricken country. Last week, Maduro called on his oil minister to present a plan to boost diesel production within 72 hours. Achilles Hopkins, who is president of Venezuela's Fed Agro Farmers Association, said authorities had not contacted farmers and he was not aware of any kind of plan. Those 72 hours were up last Saturday night and Hopkins noted that diesel shortages have led to losses in soybean and sugar crops due to an inability to harvest. And he added that farmers may lack fuel to plant staple crops like rice and corn, a cycle that's going to be getting here in about two weeks. So hopefully they do come up with a plan or else those farmers and transporters are kind of at a loss. Well, Ashton, I have a piece of news that takes us down to kind of your neck of the woods. So Texas Agricultural Commissioner Sid Miller, with the backing of former President Trump's immigration advisor, Stephen Miller, alleges in a lawsuit that the new $4 billion debt relief plan for minority farmers unconstitutionally uh, excludes white producers. Uh, Now, this lawsuit was filed earlier this week uh, saying that the uh, USDA's definition of socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers violates the Constitution and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. America First Legal says in a, said in a press release that the Constitution forbid, forbids government action that discriminates based upon race. Uh, and yet the Biden administration's Department of Agriculture, aided by the new con- Congress, is actively engages, engaging in outright racial discrimination. And while Congress is permitted to provide loan forgiveness and certain additional benefits to farmers and ranchers, Americans of all races and ethnicities will have the opportunity to receive them. Now, this kind of struck me as really interesting when I found this this morning as the as I was kind of discussing this with family members and other people in the area on, you know, their thoughts on the whole debt relief and how, you know, four billion was set aside out of the 10.6 billion uh, to socially disadvantaged farmers. Um, Kind of got mixed feelings on that, but really, I never expected uh, someone to move move ahead with a lawsuit as I did not think that it was, you know, something that would be sought out this early, especially. 
Yeah, Dawson, you make some interesting points there. And honestly, I really don't think that we've gotten a whole lot of clarification on what the Biden administration means by socially disadvantaged farmers. I haven't heard, you know, too much about, you know, the race card or anything like that. But I mean, I don't know. I think we're just going to have to wait and see what the Biden administration does say. Um, maybe a little bit more from Sid Miller. And I'm glad you're staying on top of that, because even though I'm down here in Texas, I heard nothing about that. So brownie points for you, Dawson. Thank you. <laughs> well, Dawson, moving right along here, I have some news coming out of Washington State. A recently passed law bringing Washington's low carbon fuel standards in line with California, Oregon, and British Columbia will strengthen demand for Midwestern soybean oil. The law means that more biodiesel and renewable diesel will be needed along the West Coast, according to Tom Barry, who is the director of outreach and development at the National Biodiesel Board. Barry was quoted as saying, with Washington coming on board with the low carbon fuel standard, we think in five years that's going to double to 2.5 billion gallons of biodiesel and renewable diesel demand on the West Coast. That's what it means. With passage of this legislation, every West Coast state, as well as British Columbia, have emissions restrictions that favor low-carbon fuels. Biodiesel and renewable diesel can each be made from any vegetable or animal fat, but Barry says half the feedstock is soybean oil. The case for soybean oil as a preferred renewable fuel feedstock is advanced by the fact that fuel producers want it for its consistency. So good news for our soybean producers out there. They're going to hopefully be seeing that increased demand within the next five years. And honestly, you know, I feel like the West Coast does have the reputation of being more democratic rather than having, you know, Republican beliefs or values, anything like that. And since we do have Biden in the White House, I'm wondering if we're going to see this more as a blanket issue among other states as well. Well, it seems like dairy news keeps creeping back into the newswire with, uh, according to Ag Daily Media, now four, four Midwestern dairy groups announced a federal milk marketing orders proposal uh, aimed at creating long-term stability in fluid milk pricing and reducing the likelihood of negative producer price differentials that cut into farmers' revenue last year during the pandemic. Now, it seemed like a lot of things were going on uh, recently when the whole uh, issue with the food, family to food box program was being uh kind of disbanded by the USDA. But now these four groups that are involved, which is the Dairy Business Association, Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, Minnesota Milk, and Nebraska State Dairy Association uh, are starting to you know, come back into operations this year. And they're kind of proposing what they call is uh, the Class 3 Plus, which aims to build on current pricing system and recent proposals by dairy cooperatives and also dairy farmers petition to define a better class uh, pricing system. Uh, they're kind of using this as a form of, you know, trying to get better price discovery, especially in the futures market. Uh, it seems like prices have been kind of, you know, kind of very volatile lately with uh, different things going on within the dairy industry. Um, and then the groups also said that NFPF's uh, proposal would likely result in requests for additional FMMO hearings and more cha changes in and more changes just two years from now causing further disruption and potentially jeopardizing the entire order system. Edge President Brody Staple, uh, who also farms in Wisconsin, said, quote, we want to make sure that hearing that if a hearing is granted, that will result in a lasting beneficial changes to the pricing formula. 
Uh, and the federal milk marketing orders need to be reformed, but an extremely limited hearing now, which NFPF is seeking, would destabilize the system rather than solve fundamental issues, which is our ultimate goal. Well, Dawson, I'm glad that you stayed on top of that today because I did see a headline on a couple of different news sites about it, but I didn't look into it. So I'm glad that one of us is keeping up with that. But I just have one other story to talk about today before we get into the markets, unless you have some more to add. But Mercedes Gearhart with Advent 6, who is one of the largest U.S. manufacturers of ammonium sulfate, otherwise known as AMS, said that adding AMS during a challenging spring can replace lost nutrients. And we've talked a little bit about weather, of course, on the podcast and what we can expect in the upcoming planting season. And it looks like a mixed review. AMS is a fertilizer that's a source of nitrogen and sulfate sulfur that can be applied directly to the ground. Gearhart says that AMS makes sulfur immediately available to plants and becomes increasingly important for nodulation in soybeans specifically. Gearhart also said that it provides about roughly 50% of the nitrogen a soybean needs, and sulfur is a key role there as well. She went on to tell Brownfield Ag News that without AMS, sulfur may be unavailable when the crop needs it. She says AMS is flexible enough to improve crops regardless of Mother Nature. So if you're a farmer out there that is experiencing a tough spring right now or plan to experience a tough spring in the coming weeks as we're getting ready and putting soybeans and other crops in the ground, maybe this is a solution to your problems. Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring that up on, you know, trying to eliminate waste and actually, you know, plants utilizing nutrients when they actually need it. So that's kind of cool that uh, what they're doing right there. Well, Ashton, I would say that I do have one more piece of news, and this kind of struck me as really interesting, and it actually kind of circulated, you know, non-ag news wires as well yesterday, uh, and that would be the major food website, Epicurious, who is actually opting to no longer publish beef recipes um, and also citing the impact of raising and consuming cattle on climate change. Uh, now, this comes as a surprise that, you know, even though the whole Biden administration climate action in the whole debacle of, you know, cutting meats consumption out by 90%. While that proves to be false, you know, the especially the USDA uh, fact-checking those claims and saying that those are false, I would also say, you know, it, it's kind of weird that a lot of other companies are stepping up and also kind of eliminating meat options, especially when it comes to recipes and one that kind of be one that's kind of, you know, well-known as well. Uh, but here they go on to say that, you know, cutting meat out from the diet is almost a worthwhile step in cooking more sustainably. Uh, and that was coming from the senior editor at Epicurious, uh, David Tamarkin, Tamarkin, if I, if I said that correctly. The editor also said that it would not feel like much of necessarily cutting out a single ingredient, which would be beef, uh, that could also outsize impact on making a person's cooking more environmentally friendly. Uh, under new, under this new policy, Epicurious is not necessarily cutting out beef uh, in the rep- recipes that have already been made, but it will also exclude uh, new recipes from being included in newsletters, Instagram posts uh, that would include beef recipes. Well, Dawson, that's an interesting development there. I honestly can say as a person who supports the beef industry and just, you know, the protein and meat industry as a whole, it's a little disheartening, I guess, to hear that, you know, we have this battle, I guess, with consumers that we're trying to fight right now to really just save our name. 
I would definitely agree. And, you know, even though it was uh, debunked on, you know, government kind of stepping in, it seems like a major push from these kind of companies that are, you know, really trying to eliminate beef consumption or just animal meat consumption in general. And so it's kind of curious on how that'll affect uh, overall demand in the market or, you know, just overall being able to produce it as well. Well, Dawson, I am ready to hop into the markets if you are, although I got to say I'm a little bit anxious. It's my first time reading them, you know, on the podcast. So you're just going to have to hang tight with me as we kind of go through this. Oh, don't worry. I think we're both getting a learning experience here. So I think this will just be our way to go. Yeah, this is a little bit of a rough episode, I guess. But folks, here we go, heading off into the markets. Looking at corn today, you know, really just across the board, there's kind of a lot of red on the screen. But here in May, corn down nine cents and a quarter, ending at 686 and a quarter. Going down to the December corn contracts, down 15 cents and three quarters, ending at 546 and a half. Soybeans had a little bit of a nice outlook for the May contract, going up eight cents, ending at 15.57 and three quarters. The July down five cents and three quarters, ending at 15.36 and three quarters. The November contract down 14 cents and a half, ending at 13.28 flat. The wheat contracts May down eight quarters, eight and a half quarters, ending at 7.25 and a half. The July ending down 10 cents at 722 and three quarters. The December contract down 13 and a half, ending at 720 and a half. Taking a hop over to the livestock markets. Looking into live cattle, the April contract up five and a quarter cents, ending at $118.95. The August down $8.25, ending at $116.04 and a quarter cents. Feeder cattle, the April down three and a quarter, ending at $133 and three quarters. The August down a dollar and three quarter cents to end at 148.90. The lean hogs green across the screen here as we look into the May contract up a dollar and four and three quarter cents to end at 111 and three quarters. The July contract up two dollars and six and a quarter cents to end at 107 nine and a half. And rounding out our markets with the dairy milk futures, class three dairy milk futures, the April down a cent to, or up a cent, I should say, to close at 1765. The June up 18 cents to close at 1970. With that, let's take a look at our conversation talking about Protect the Harvest. Well, for today's conversation, we are talking to Teresa Lucas McMahon, who is a program manager and board secretary for Protect the Harvest. Teresa, before we get started, I just wanted to thank you for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me, Ashton. Uh, Anything to help our ag communities and to get the word out of what's actually going on in our country right now. And I'm really excited to talk about that because I feel like a lot has been going on, you know, from a consumer basis, you know, within the past year and a lot of legislation is going on, policy. 
Um, but before we really get into the good stuff, I wanted to know a little bit more about your background and what got you to protect the harvest. Sure. Um, oddly enough, uh, I was not interested in any of this. Uh, I originally went to school uh, to be a veterinary technician um, and, you know, kind of distanced myself from my grandfather's uh, company, which was Lucas Oil Products. So that's Forrest Lucas. He ended up starting Protect the Harvest back in 2011. And I took a little interest into it uh, just because I had been working with animals in multiple uh, settings and decided I would go ahead and jump in. So I joined Protect the Harvest in 2014 um, after working in Lucas Oil Products for a little bit to try to get my feet wet in the company and realized I am not an oil person. I am not a salesman, but I am interested in um, animals and animal ownership and ensuring that people can continue those relationships with their animals, whether it be for food or for, you know, some sort of service animal or for just even having a pet. So I saw, at least from the veterinary side, um, a lot of anthropomorphism, a lot of animal rights leaking into that community and, you know, it didn't, it didn't hit me full force until I was in Protect the Harvest and working full-time um, on that side for a couple years and really started diving into some of these animal rights conferences and, you know, speaking with these people on that side one-on-one and understanding that it's not just, you know, a little bit of legislation here, an ordinance there. It is truly a lifestyle that they see and a religion, if you, if you want to call it that. Um, and they want everything completely the opposite that we have it currently. And I think a lot of people miss that point. There's still some type of, there's still some type of understanding that people have where they think maybe most of these people on the animal rights side are just wanting animals to have a better life. And that is, that is completely the opposite. It is, a movement of truly giving an animal full rights as a human being has. Um, even if that means letting that animal go out and starve, like, for example, like the wild horse issue, um, you know, not having humans get involved whatsoever to even help the animals is what the most extreme view of it is. So it has been, to say the least, an eye-opening journey, um, going from someone who had no background in this, had no political understanding, you know, couldn't read a bill when I started this, couldn't understand much of this, um, to now getting involved in national issues on a daily basis um, and working with our team on social media issues and just trying to educate the public. Um, I know a lot of farmers and ranchers uh, have come around to the issues and understand them pretty well, um, but the general public is still pretty blind to it, and that's really our main push is to try to wake people up. And Teresa, I just kind of have a, a quick follow-up clarification question here. Is Protect the Harvest just dealing with animal agriculture? Because, I mean, you touched on that quite a bit. Or are there different aspects of agriculture that's kind of Protect the Harvest is kind of just trying to be all-encompassing of? 
Oh, gosh. So we have tried our best to stay in pretty much anything that's animal-related, ag-related, um, and to be a, a sort of umbrella organization to help bring all other organizations under it. Um, for example, we work with the Amish. Um, a lot of Amish uh, people own dog commercial dog breeding or, uh, companies. As I mean, I know some people aren't aware of that. I was not aware of that before I started this journey. Um, so we try to bring them in line with, say, the AKC and other organizations that deal with uh, dog breeding. We work on just general animal agriculture, um, property rights issues, um, land issues as far as out in the West water rights issues. I mean, you name it. If it has to do with being able to use your property for what is included in the constitution, like using your property to produce, you know, produce a product to sell, um, to live your life and to, you know, pretty much live the way that we established this country. Um, that you should be able to produce products on your land, whether it be an animal product or a crop um, or use your minerals that are on your land. Um, that is the goal of our organization is to follow the constitution and to get everyone back in line with being able to do that. Um, and if that means that we have to fight legislation, if that means we have to fight it legally, uh, we will do so. Gotcha. And on your website, you guys have interactive courses and educational resources, which I'm a little interested in and in learning more about that. I say a little interested. I'm definitely interested in learning more about those courses and resources. So why don't you expand on those? Sure. Um, we have a series that's been uh, around for a little while called the Government by the People series. And that was put together for the National Ag in the Classroom. Um, the main goal of that was to get some information out there to students to teach them what the Constitution actually says. Um, I know some schools now are kind of going away from that. They're not actually having students read the Constitution or the Bill of Rights um, or the De Declaration of Independence. Um, you know, that was kind of a norm when I was in school, which was not too terribly long ago, but um, you know, if you don't know what these documents say, you don't know what you're fighting for or fighting against. So education is like the number one issue we try to deal with. Um, we also have uh, a few other different documents on there about, you know, how to get involved with um, different organizations that rule the world. You know, are you involved in your local county commissioner meetings? Are you involved with the city planning meetings? You know, when's the last time you showed up to any of the political groups meetings? Um, you know, there's a ton of nonprofits, even in your local counties and communities, your cities. You don't have to go far to get involved in what's going on as far as, you know, staying on top of what's going on in the environmentalist groups, the animal rights groups, you know, the farming and ranching groups. And I know... I know that, you know, everyone is strapped for time. We work all week long. We have families to deal with. We got dinner to cook, a house to clean. 
But the problem is if we don't deal with this now, we are not going to have those things later down the road. So making time, you know, taking an hour a week and getting involved in something in your community makes a huge difference. Um, and that's why we put these educational programs together. So we have some um, interactive modules. We have some that are actually in the works that are going to be released here shortly um, about animal rights and the difference between animal rights and animal welfare. Um, and those are mainly just to get people involved. I know not everybody wants to read an article that takes, you know, 15 minutes to read. It's, you know, we're in a, in a world right now where people want a 15 second video and, and that's it. So we're trying to release some interactive modules that um, give you quick information and you can take it with you and share it with somebody else. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, we try to hit a little bit of everything. So whether you want to read an article that takes you five or 10 minutes, whether you want to read a tweet that we send out that can, you know, be shared with other people, whether you want to do some educational information that you can give to a teacher, we have it. Um, it or if you're interested on the legislative side, we have plenty of information on that. I mean, we try just to hit everything so that everyone can be involved. Every single person in this country needs to be involved with what's happening in our communities right now. And Teresa, I just kind of want to end on this really quickly, but what are just a few key issues that producers should be aware of right now? Sure. Uh, gosh, where to start? Um, one that we're really concerned with is obviously Initiative 16 over in Colorado, or the PAUSE Act is what they were calling it. And that's regarding... Um, pretty much any animal agriculture, making it, I mean, it's practically illegal to do any sort of AI palpation on an animal. Um, you know, that is something that will end animal agriculture in Colorado and just outright. There's also a, another ballot initiative over in Oregon, very similar to that. Um, it is still awaiting, I believe. So the ballot initiative in Oregon is also an issue. Um, it will be restrictive of AIs and also um, palpations and some other veterinary procedures that are normal on ranches, normals on farms, normal in a veterinary setting. Um, the, the, the big issue and difference between the Oregon initiative and the Colorado initiative is the, or the Oregon does not include um, the restriction on how, or I should say, when you can slaughter an animal by age. So the Colorado includes the restriction on slaughtering an animal, as in the animal has to be at least 25% of its life lived. Oregon doesn't have that, but it still includes that restriction of AI and any sort of palpation. We also have a pretty big issue in Los Angeles City, California, which is a, a rodeo ban that's being proposed. They are still writing the language on that, but what they will be pushing this off of is pretty much what they put into Pittsburgh, which is language that could be used to pretty much end multiple types of animal um, entertainment, I should say, uh, not just rodeos. So, I mean, you're thinking dog shows, you know, horse shows, 
livestock expeditions. Um, if somebody really wanted to push it, they could end all of those items, not just rodeo. Um, and that's, you know, those are just three issues. I mean, there are numerous, numerous issues. We have a ban down in Florida right now on exotics that uh, is pretty much going to decimate the exotic breeders down there, um, not giving them enough time or even the ability to to figure out what they're going to do. <laughs> it's just an outright ban. So that's not something we we see too often that they're not willing to compromise whatsoever. Um, but I mean, these things happen literally every day and it is, it is, it can be overwhelming to keep up with everything. I mean, I can't even keep up with everything and I work here. Um, we have a, a team of people luckily that we can all kind of take a piece and monitor. Um, but it's, it's every day. We, we, we thought last year was an overwhelming year with the amount of legislation that was being introduced. And it really is nothing compared to this year. Um, it is just, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm kind of at a loss and I'm always at a loss when I talk about this issue just because it's, um, it's a mess. No, I, I definitely agree. There's, I mean, on the podcast, I feel like we're talking all the time about legislation that's being introduced, you know, that affects the world of agriculture. But Teresa, I just want to thank you once more for coming on the podcast today and talking to us about these issues, about Protect the Harvest. If any of our listeners want to go and learn a little bit more, where can they find you guys at? Oh, sure. Yeah, we are on uh, Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram, Gab. Um, We do not have a parlor up yet, um, but we are on Clout Hub, and I mean, we also have our regular website, which is just protecttheharvest.com. Yeah, you can feel free to just call us. We have an 800 number. You can reach us anytime, day or night. Uh, You can send us email, info at protecttheharvest.com. If you have a question, one of us will be able to answer it for sure. Awesome. Well, Teresa, thanks again so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks again there to Teresa for coming on and talking to us about Protect the Harvest. I think that this is a kind of crazy time in agriculture as we have to bridge the gap a lot more now between producer and consumer and kind of really fight for our name like we honestly were just kind of talking about earlier, Dawson. I I would say so as well. Well, we are always having some pretty interesting conversations here on the Ag News Daily podcast, which you can follow along with on agnewsdaily.com, as well as on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. With that, Dawson, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.